0: of As and a truly staggering talent.
1: He'll be ranked among the all-time greats. How do you feel about being world champion?
0: It's not a bad feeling at all is it?
1: Ayrton has a small problem, he thinks that he can't kill himself, and I think that's very dangerous. We are competing to win, and if you no longer go for a gap, you're no longer a racing driver. Now Alain takes the lead, Senna is trying to go through on the inside, I was treated like a criminal. The best decision is my decision, I can't stand this. Walking away from the dark forces just doesn't become an option. I was not going to give up. So have any of your girlfriends ever asked you to go faster? Yeah. There was an energy, a force, a spirit. It was electrifying.
0: the last time either of them would be on the podium.
1: Ayrton ran out of luck. There is a lot to go, a lot to learn, a lot to do. But I have plenty of time. Pure driving, pure racing, that makes me happy.
0: White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 526... (laughs) Hello and welcome to Open Wheel, the White Rocket Indy Car and Formula One podcast. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Alan J. Porter. Welcome back aboard, Alan. Thank you, Van. Uh,
1: a new year, a new season, and uh, some new movies to look at, and then hopefully a bit down the road, some actual racing to talk about. So uh, looking forward, looking forward to the first uh, first races in a couple of weeks.
0: Oh no, kidding! It just can't come soon enough. It, I mean, I know it's not been that long since the last races, but they just, they. It's just like with. It's the same way I felt about the football, se- college football season last year. In both cases, I was glad to have something, but it just didn't seem the same, you know.
1: No, it didn't quite. I mean, I know they F one got what was it, seventeen races in the second half of the year, but I mean, they ran into December, which seemed a bit weird. Um, yeah.
0: It just and without the yeah, crowd, it but, just uh, just didn't
1: yeah, seem. The- yeah. So I actually got a email from circuit of the Americas today saying that I could uh, put down my non-refundable deposit for a couple of Grand Sands seats at a couple of thousand dollars or whatever for a Grand sand seat Woo. on the main straight. Non, but I, I saw that word, non-refundable deposit, and I'm like, with everything that's going on, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: that's a so good I've point.
1: A, yeah. I've actually still got my uh, MotoGP uh, tickets from 2019, which we haven't used yet, and I'm guessing we're probably not going to use them this year, either. So
0: Oh, man. But yeah,
1: so uh, hopefully we'll at least in some parts of the world we'll get some uh, some races with some crowd back in and uh, uh, more of a full schedule this year. So uh, look, looking so. forward to it. And just seeing the new cars coming out this week, the new liveries and stuff. Uh, some of them are looking really good, some of them not so good. But um, look, <laughs> uh, looking forward to seeing them on track.
0: Well, t- two two things I want to respond to there. One, I've haven't renewed my IndyCar tickets at, at Granite City yet, at Gateway mainly just because last year was the most boring race I ever sat through. And I just, unless they change the cars or do something, I can't sit through it. I can't pay a bunch of money to go sit through them going around in circles and nobody ever passing anybody again. That was brutal. That was brutal. And um, as far as the the new Formula One cars being unveiled, I've liked all the designs I've seen so far. I've only seen a handful. But the two things Renault now looks like, it's an American car. It's like very red, white, and blue. I know that France is red, white, and blue, or blue, blanc, and rouge. I know, but still, I look at that. I look at the Renault car and I think that's the American car. But then I saw the Haas car and I thought two yes. things about it. First, I thought it looks like the Williams car. It's white. And second, I thought well, that actually looks a lot better than what Haas has ever done before. And then third, I said, hey, they got the Russian flag on their front wing. So I'm really confused by Haas now.
1: Yeah, the American team is uh, draped in the Russian flag which is also meant to be illegal currently because Russia is not actually meant to take place in any international sports because of some doping ban and they're not allowed, to, you're not allowed to display the Russian flag but because it's not straight lines it's wavy lines they're getting away with it. Uh, is and it? They're saying, "Well, it's not the Russian flag, it's the colors of our main sponsor who just happened to be Russian." Uh, yeah.
0: Oh, <laughs> so, see, I thought it was American and they just put them in the order that it I'm like, "What?" Yeah. Okay, wow. Now I'm yeah so uh, I'm even more the, the, confused.
1: The new title sponsor is Russian and just uh, just happens to be the, the majority shareholder. Just happens to be the daddy of their new new pay driver.
0: Oh okay, I got you now. That uh, yeah that guy. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, well,
1: uh, but but you're right. The, the it's gonna it's gonna mentally take a shift. I mean the uh, the pink cars in our British racing green sort of. Um, yeah, that was uh, the
0: other one. That looked
1: good. It did. Yeah. I, I was I was actually hoping it would be. Close closer to the deeper green of actual British racing green. But I'm yeah. guessing that probably doesn't show up as well on TV. Um, it probably look a bit more muddy or a bit dark and closer to black. So they've gone for a sort of a lighter, slightly metallic green. which But it's still Aston Martin. and it's still some version of British racing green on, on the Formula 1 grid for the first time in 60-odd years. So probably longer than that. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, excited to see see that uh, them back on track um, and to see cars of that colour back on track. I
0: can't. I can't remember any year that I, I've been watching since the 16 season was my first season I started watching, and I can't remember. Um, and, and believe it or not, that's five whole seasons. It seems like five minutes ago when I say 2016. That was five seasons, five full seasons, going into the sixth season now. I can't remember a time that this many cars look completely different from one season to another.
1: No, I. There's, yeah, I, there's been a lot of rebranding over the uh, over the winter, which is. Mm. Uh, Unusual. Sometimes you get like one team doing it, but um, we got two complete rebrands and then changes in major sponsors and stuff. So yeah, it's it. I think as I said, I think mentally when they're actually on track, it's going to take a little while to dial in as to who you're actually watching. Um, not quite as bad as IndyCar when they change every flipping race. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> race, to race sometimes it's like who's that again? Um, but, oh, uh, yeah, it will take a little you, you're getting used to.
0: It. Here, here. Uh... My my weekly, ri- or however, my every race ritual is figuring out which car is Rossi this week.
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Is it the Napa car or is it something else? Uh, yeah. So,
0: sometimes it's the Air Force, the red and blue one. Sometimes it's that pink and black. If it's not the Napa car, I really have a hard time figuring out which one is him.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, there's a couple of them that have to do that. I mean, Scott is always the same, Yeah. Uh, there's a few of them that I'm doing that. Yeah, no. with uh, I'm hoping that, that uh, Roman Grosjean doesn't change his colours too much this season either. So uh, we can keep an eye on him. I'm looking forward to seeing him in IndyCar. So.
0: Yeah, he. Um, oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Pag- I think about Paggio Pagino has the fluorescent car, but he also has that black yeah. and white one that he drives sometimes. The colour scheme. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Well, give we me are- the good old days when it was the Mar- Marlborough car and the Kmart <laughs> car and the Target car, and
0: yeah, <laughs>
1: and it never changed, ever.
0: Yeah. yeah. And then there's always that one car I see in old Formula One. This is gets us to what we're going to talk about tonight. There's always that one car that I see in all the old Formula One re- re- recordings. That's the black car, and it says, The John Player Special. And I'm always like, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds cool as hell.
1: <laughs> I don't know it was what a it is. Br- it's, cig- okay. it's a cigarette brand. Okay, well, it, but uh, yeah, Lotus, that classic Lotus. That's that's my team, and we'll talk a bit more about that as we go through. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, the classic Lotus team is my
0: team. So. I just always see that yeah. branding on this on that black car, and it, it I, I like, I have no idea what they're selling. For all I know, there's just this guy named John Player, and he built a car, and it's the John Player Special. I don't huh. know, but it just always cracks me up, and I love it. So there you go. Now I know what it is. That's, uh, I've already learned something.
1: Yeah, yeah, those were the most beautiful cars. I think those black and gold JPS cars. <laughs> that's great. Well, anyway, that's a ho- that could be a whole other podcast. It could
0: because anyway. we are, but it does take us back a few years, and that's what we're here for tonight. We've we've talked about quite a few racing movies over the last year or so, and tonight we're gonna we're gonna talk about one that I think is a really powerful movie. It's the it's it's the only one I think we've watched so far that's actually a do- a straight documentary and not uh you know a drama a fictionalized. Even if it's a true story, like Ford versus Ferrari, a drama with actors. This is a this is the real deal. And so, tell the folks what we're going to be talking about tonight.
1: Okay, we're going to be uh, talking about Senna, which came out in 2010. Um, I will argue slightly that this is the read re- and not fictionalized because the way they cut this documentary together to, to tell a certain story, certain bits of it, and we'll get into that as we get into the movie, are a little, if not fictionalized, that's implied or skewed slightly. Um, from a certain perspective. Um, but it is all put together with uh, interviews, uh, I'm not even talking head interviews, a, a few voiceovers, but it's mainly put together with archive footage of the races, Senna's family home movies, interviews he, he and other people did over the years, um, all cut together to tell this story of uh, the Brazilian three-time world champion, Etten Senna, um, and his time in Formula One. And uh, it, it it is... Um, yeah, it's quite a powerful movie, as you mentioned. So.
0: It's it's interesting, too, because I knew nothing of his era. I, In fact, I've said before that there's a few drivers I had heard of not even watching Formula One at all growing up. Um, I had heard of Jody Schechter. I'd heard of um, Nicky Lauda. But I'd never heard of Senna. I just didn't really know anything about him until I watched this the first time a couple of years ago. <clears throat> and then watched it again this the last couple of days to talk about it tonight and enjoyed it even more. I, I, I the first time I watched it, I didn't really understand. It was several years ago when I was first getting into in, back into racing again for the first time in many years, and I thought it was interesting. And I but I'm like, okay, well that's a sad story. But okay, this time though, I guess for whatever reason, having watched a number of seasons, it 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 was it hit me. <coughs> excuse me, it hit me harder. And part of that, I think, was, you know, we haven't had much of a, um, in the last five years, really, we haven't had much of a two great drivers in equal cars trying to destroy each other since Rosberg retired. That 2016 season, when I first started watching, was great. I mean, of all the seasons I could have started watching to fall in love with Formula One as a grown-up. I picked a good year because that was like the one year in the last seven years that Lewis Hamilton didn't just dominate, that it was actually close. And so they crashed each other a couple of times, you know, trying to, at the beginning of races, I mean, there's a scene where Senna and Proust crash into each other, you know, at the very beginning of the race. And I'm like, oh, that's like Lewis Hamilton and and Nico Rosberg right there, you know. So I guess I had more of a context for it this time. I think
1: so. And plus the fact that, you know, I think as we've done these and we've watched the races and we've talked over the last you know, four years, how long we've doing these, three years now, mm-hmm. um, on and off, um, you know, I think we've mentioned Senna a lot and he gets referenced in the commentary a lot still. I mean, he's still very much, you know, 20 plus years after his passing, he's still very much a presence in the sport, uh, who gets referenced a lot by a lot of the drivers, um, you know, and quite often you'll see the drivers, some of the drivers wearing Senna tribute helmets at various points, last year um hmm. so it, i don't think you can watch formula one for more than a season without the name coming up in in some way or other or some reference
0: yeah um, yeah so, so do you want to talk about the movie yeah absolutely let's dig into it a little bit i i would just say to kind of set it up for people that haven't watched it and, and there's not really it's kind of an impossible movie to spoil because it's a known story so we can just talk about it without worrying about it but i'll just say it's 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 the the main bulk of the movie, and correct me if if, I, if I'm wrong here, mischaracterizing it, the main bulk of this movie is just a, a sort of a chronological walk through his his big Formula One seasons from the late '80s through the early '90s, and it kind of hits the highlights of each season for him, the lowlights for him, and then you get a little bit about him as a person. You get some behind the scenes stuff. Mainly just to show you why you should care about him, like what kind of a person was he? What did, what kind of things did he say? What did he do? What did he think? Who was he dating? You know, what was his parents like? That kind of thing. So you you kind of go between the alternating between the chronological. Here's the season, and then here's him, and then it plays up certain developments that would impact him, like his rivalry with 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 uh, with with uh, Elaine Prost. And his, um, and then the the developments in the car in his last season that maybe contributed to what happened to him. So, is that a fair way to describe it, or what would you add to that for people? That had yeah, think?
1: I would. And then it's sort of the probably the last fifteen minutes, twenty minutes of the movie focuses on. Yeah. It maybe even it's not even that long. It maybe just feels that long. Um, focuses mm-hmm. on the events that that led to his passing the, and the accident. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I will say I've seen this film numerous times, um, and. When it gets to that Imola 1994 uh, title, it, I still get a lump in my throat, no, and even though I know what's coming, um, yeah, I, that that last bit just um, really wrecks me every time. Um, mm. So, uh, so one of the things I do like about the movie is it book ends with him in karting as a young guy. It starts with him talking about karting and how pure the racing was, mm-hmm. and it ends with him talking about karting and um, and how pure the racing was. Um, and I actually loved that for a few reasons, and I'm sort of going to go into a bit if you like my personal mm-hmm. history with Etten Senna. Yeah. Um, so I I love the fact that um, he does that because one it, it that was Senna at the core. He was always a kart racer, even when he was in Formula One. A lot of the things he did in Formula One, he did he learnt in karting, and he sort of mentions that. But the other reason I, I I love it is that's the era of karting when I was actually actively involved in karting. My friend, two friends, and I had a um a little race team team um, and we we raced karts um, not at that level and not in that class but um, I knew who he was um, you know we, we were around sort of the mid to late 70s when we were karting um, his name was in the karting magazines you know he was in York he was winning stuff in Brazil he was coming to the world championships in Europe but he, he never quite won the world championship but he was runner up several times um, and then between my first and second st- college stints I did like Went to two different colleges, two different degrees, but in this gap in between, I actually worked at Zip karts, um, who were one of the work cart manufacturers for race, not for proper racing carts. We did everything from 100cc cadet or 50cc cadets that you you, you start your kids off into to the 100cc stuff that Senna raced up to the 250 supercars that go as fast as a Formula Three car. Um, Uh, And I worked there um, helping to build chassis, and I actually built one for Senna's great rival, Terry Fullerton, who Senna mentions at the end of the movie, um, has been the the one person who he he really admired in racing, was was Fullerton, Terry Fullerton, a British racer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually still have a photograph of Terry Fullerton in the cart that I built, hanging up on my garage wall. Um, Wow. Wow. so uh, that, that's pretty cool. Um, so to hear Ed and Senna mention that name uh, in this movie was like pretty special for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so in, in uh, 81, I think it was, Senna moved from Brazil to the UK and he mixed karts and Formula Ford 1600. And this is when I first saw him race. I was actually in karts at some of the British kart tracks when he was mixing the two. And I tell you, he was special then. Um he would go around corners. He developed a very particular style and you could hear it in cars, you can even hear it in Formula One, um, of sort of deliberately making the chassis off balance in the middle of the corner by blipping the throttle all the way through the corner. Um, You know, most race drivers are on or off the throttle. He he would actually modulate it in the middle of the corner and unbalance the chassis. so So it was sort of half slide, half grab, half slide, half grab. Um, and he would carry a lot more speed and you would see people try and go through the corner, taking the same lines he did. And they would just fly off into the weeds. <laughs> um, it was, it, it was amazing. You know, somebody <laughs> would, be, Oh, I'm going to follow him and woop, they'd be off. <laughs> and he'd, he'd carry on. Um, so he was really special. Um, and then in, um, Oh yeah, I want to do a sidetrack. So when he was racing Formula Ford 1600, he was teammates with an Irish guy called Tommy Byrne. Um, Tommy Byrne was probably actually naturally faster than Senna. Um, he was a real rival for Senna. Um, and I'm going to sidebar. If you want to watch a really interesting documentary, there's a documentary on Prime called Crash and Burn. It's Tommy Byrne's story um, about why he was the fastest driver never to make it into Formula One. Um, he has mm. a very interesting career. He basically he did a test for McLaren. He beat Nicky Lauda's time. He would have been the time he did on the test. He would have been I think. 10th on the grip formula long grid, for the british grand prix that year even though it was on cold cold tires on a cold circuit he, he was just amazingly quick um but basically he was a irish um irish kid grew up uh, working class background had a criminal record and basically uh, was into drugs uh, and women and rock and roll and um would basically turn up to race, totally stoned out of his mind, and then blow everybody off. Um, not the sort of guy that Ron Dennis would hire for McLaren, okay. even though... He, uh, <laughs> so, uh, he, and then later in his career, he actually ended up racing sponsored by Mexican drug lords. Um, so, <laughs> so it, it's it, it, this guy is a complete character. I highly recommend, if you want an hour and a half, of something, you just won't believe the stories about this guy. Um, uh, called Tommy Bernadette yeah, the as I said, the movie is called Crash and Burn and it is on Amazon Prime so if you want an hour and a half uh, go look at it. But the interesting thing is he talks about his time with Senna there and the mind games even then that um, he and Senna were playing with each other even in Formula Ford 1600 so uh, you couldn't get two more contrasting characters. Very interesting. Wow. Um, So according to my time and gave up karts in 82 and then focused on Formula 4 2000. And none of this is in this movie, by the way. If you watch the, the movie the movie Senate, it, it seems like he it, it sort of implies he, he he was in karts and then got his first Formula 1 drive. Yeah. They don't talk about his time in the junior formula at all. No. Um, but it's a very important part of his sorry, uh, career. So he, he gave up karts in 82 to focus totally on car racing. He went into Formula 4 2000. Uh, which is where I f- met him for the first time, um, in the paddock at Alton Park, which is oh, the, wow. my local circuit. Um, and I actually still have a, some photographs of him in action uh, on track at that time. Uh, Labelled, captioned with, he was then racing as Ayrton Senna De Silva, because um, mm-hmm. Senna, I think, is his mother's name, and De Silva is his father's surname. Yeah. Um, so he was, wh- yeah, so he, was, he wasn't he was Ayrton Senna then, he was Ayrton De Silva. Um but, uh, yeah, he was a very quiet, very intense guy when I, I spoke to him very briefly for, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. Um, but when he really impressed me was when he made it into Formula 3 the following year. Um, and he had a great rivalry with Martin Brundle, who we now think of as the mainly <laughs> the uh, colour commentary commentator on uh, the Formula 1 coverage. Right. Actually, he and Senna uh, had a rivalry that was as intense as the Senna-Prost rivalry, um, including taking each other off um, there's one of the races at Alton park actually Senna ended up on top of Martin Brundle's head, um, with <laughs> the car. Wow. Um, so, uh, and again, there's an actually an, a, a documentary which you can watch for free online called Senna versus Brundle, which is all about that formula three season. Um, and that's a pretty good documentary too. Interesting. Um, I never would have guessed. Um, and that was the year, um, i Jill and I went to the British Grand Prix that year, 83, at Silverstone. And the Formula Three race was the support race for the British Grand Prix. And I said to Jill there when uh, Senna came, when we were watching Senna, I was like, this guy's going to be a a future world champion. And pretty much, um, you know, I followed his career closely, um, especially when he got to the JPS, the Lotus. um, Because as I just mentioned, they were my favorite team. And I'd actually, my second college, my. one of my college papers for, for my degree, I actually did on F1 aerodynamics and I did it with the help of a Lotus team. They were really helpful. So uh, Lotus was my team for many, many years. Oh, uh, wow. And uh, so sort of with that, that that's sort of a bit of the background to center to in his younger years, which was not in the movie. And I, I, I think they did him a disservice by not talking about the fact that he moved to England, gave up everything. You know, was living in a caravan in somebody's yard. Well, you know. Well, he was building his career and was learning all this sort of, you know, learning um, a lot by racing at, at British club level uh, against a lot of folks that he would end up racing against in uh, in Formula One. So, uh, yeah, so he did not jump from karts to <laughs> straight into a Formula One Tolman, which is pretty much what the movie makes you think he did. So.
0: Right. He, he, there is a little bit about him. Um, I remember a very tiny bit saying where he's saying how he had left everything behind and gone off to live in Europe and didn't know anybody and was you know alone and all that they very very barely touch on that but just for a moment so yeah I'm glad you kind of clarified that a little bit that that makes sense so um I I thought that the that one was the thing that I, one of the things I thought was interesting was it talked so much about the poverty in Brazil and all which is certainly true but it they don't Talk much about it. You have to kind of get this sense that apparently his family had money. He didn't come. For, he wasn't like poverty-ridden, living in the barrio or whatever. He, uh, they had the resources. Of course, that's not a sport that you can usually just jump right into when you're poor, right? So,
1: right. Yeah. I mean, he came from a very wealthy family, and they uh, pretty much, uh, you know, from him, whatever age it was, depends which interview you listen to. Whether he's, he was four or six, he's he's always a little sort of fuzzy on that one because he, he usually says. He says four in some interviews and six in the other to when he first started racing. But whatever, you know, from pretty much early on him saying he wanted to be a racing driver, his family uh, pretty much supported him. And they were a very wealthy family. I mean, you've got to, you know, just see the uh, the videos of them, you know, floating around in their massive speedboats and yachts and um, things like that. So, yeah, he, I think he came from a, a, a very wealthy background. But he did, you know, as I said, you know, at the end, you know as a teen late in his late teens early 20s leave it all behind uh you know moved to england and as i said was uh you know living in a caravan in somebody's backyard in, in the wilds of norfolk uh while he was you know racing in formula Ford. so uh <laughs> yeah yeah he did come from a privileged background but he did he did work his way up uh, I And mean, i think they touch on that um a little bit i mean after the, the karting thing, they jumped to Monaco in '84, and him being in the Tollman. Um, and again, what they don't talk about is the fact that he was a after his Formula Three championship, he was a hot property. Man. McLaren were after him back then. Um, he did he actually did a test for Williams in in '83, but uh, I think both Williams and McLaren wanted to put him onto fairly lengthy, restrictive, long term contracts. And he actually wanted more control over his career, um, so which is why he ended up in the the lower end Tolman um, team, where he could really dictate, uh, you know, his career and make the moves he wanted to, um, and suss things out as he was getting his feet, it, it, you know, uh, I was going to say getting his feet wet, but you know he was he was making those first steps into Formula One, doing it on his own terms. Uh, a very methodical and calculating guy. They always say that that Alan Pross was methodical and calculating as the you know, with being called a professor. But Senna uh, mm-hmm. was a very smart, intelligent guy who really had his career mapped out and what steps he wanted to uh, take in his career. You know, uh, get in a car, learn it, then get in the best car and start to win and then get in the even better car and start to take championships. That was that was his sort of uh, modus operandi.
0: Yeah, it seems that way. It comes across. I mean, he, um, I don't know, It, it's like he has... Um, a very—he always well. I mean, a lot of drivers are that way, but he has a very strong idea of how everything's supposed to go, and he seems to have very little patience with anybody else that 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 wants to argue with him. I mean, whether it be other drivers or his team or whatever, he. Uh, there were several moments in there where he would like just get up and walk out because and he seemed and it's part of it too is he seemed like he was, he kept his emotions very close to service. He was a very emotional guy, very religious guy, very emotional guy. And when anything would bother him, either like when a driver would crash or when somebody would be arguing with him in a meeting or something, he just couldn't handle it. It just seemed like he'd had to just get up and leave because he just didn't want to, you know, and, and even in the middle of a conversation, he would just like Put his head in his hands and just kind of be pulling his hair and everything. You, you got the sense that he that he he wasn't like the most level headed, le- even tempered guy. But but that passion and that and that you know that fire is, I guess, a big part of what drove him and made him successful.
1: Yeah, I think he was very passionate. Uh, you know, I think probably it's the Latin temperament. I mean, I think they talk about that in the movie. Sorry, I've watched too many Senna documentaries over the last couple. <laughs> Of days. Um, it might have been that one or it might have been one of the others where Ron Dennis, uh, the McLaren guy, was talking about you've got a Brazilian and a Frenchman and you can't really get too much more diametrically opposed cultural backgrounds in <laughs> terms of handling emotions. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, I, I think it was very close to the surface. He was very, you know, he had this uh, literal God given mm-hmm. belief in that he was, you know, he would win um, mm-hmm. and nothing would stop him. But, you know, from what I've read and what I've heard, um, that uh, people were, he he was very, very popular with the mechanics and the engineers and people at the factories. And he, you know, all the great champions seem to do it. Michael Schumacher did it as well. Uh, You know, making sure that, uh, and Lewis Hamilton does it. And a lot of the others do it as well is you know, making sure that they know the mechanics, you know, a bit like Nicky Lauder in the uh, in, in the movie Rush that we, you know, talked about, he went in and, mm-hmm. and was like, You guys have got to rebuild the car, but he stayed there with them till two o'clock in the morning to do it. Right. Um and I think Senna was I think you know, from what I've heard, Senna was very much like that as well. He 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 would, you know, he would be there with the guys um and working with him and, you know, the mechanics and the people that worked with him adored him, yet knew he had, you know, this this sort of mercurial um side to him as well. Mm-hmm. So, let's talk about... I actually want to talk... Yep. Go on.
0: No, I I was just going to ask you about Elaine Prost. I don't know much of anything about him. I missed his entire career, too. And I just wanted to kind of see if we could discuss a little bit the way that, you know, did the movie portray their relationship and their rivalry fairly, in your opinion? And and how would you describe it? and, And what was missing from it and so forth?
1: Um... That's partly when I said I think this movie is slightly fictionalised. I think they made out to be the bigger villain than he actually was. Um, I actually think the – probably we'll get into that. I actually think the real villain at that time, and not just with Senna. I think he, for the sport as a whole, was Jean-Marie Balest, the the head of the FIA. Um, There's a whole backstory with him that goes back into the 70s. Um, But um, I think he was the real villain in the past – Yes, they, you know, they didn't get on, um, you know, in the same way, you know, we, you just talked about Hamilton and Rosberg, you know, those are guys who basically grew up together, been karting together since the age of eight, um, you know, were great friends until it came down to fighting for a world championship and that fractured. And then once the champion, you know, Nico had basically won his championship and moved on, they've started to sort of, you know, they're not best buddies yet, but they're, you know, they're talking to each other now. Um, I. Yes there was that intense rivalry uh, again I've sort of seen and read things with uh, Ron Dennis where he was like yes I knew I knew it would be a problem um, it was just a question of when the problem would arise and how big it would be and how how, how could I contain it and at times I couldn't um, but uh, it's you know it, it is interesting um, I Prost, I, hmm. you know um, I, I think became fairly close to, to Senate before the you know um, and particularly to Senate family he He's actually a member. Of, I think he's on the board of the Senna Foundation. He's certainly involved in it um, these days. Um, so you know, um, I, I don't think he was. I think he was one of the pallbearers at the funeral. I may be wrong on that, but I think he was. Um, you know, he he they sort of patched up their differences towards the end. You know, if you if you see the, i was mean, jumping towards the end of the movie, but that last race for McLaren in Australia when uh, Senna won, and you see the two of them on the podium, sort of both arms around each other's shoulders. You know, um, yeah. you know, they're smiling and stuff, so yeah. I, I, you know, Pros says he's the one who bought Senna to McLaren because actually McLaren at that point was saying they wanted the other Brazilian, um, the Brazilian champion Nelson Pique. And Pros is like, no, you need the young guy if you want a future in this team, invest in the future, you need the young guy, get Senna. Um, So, you know, um, I think he felt he opened the door for him. I think he knew, I think Prost knew he was going to be a challenge. I didn't think he realized how much of a challenge he was going to be, how quickly um, and how determined they were. Um, And they were coming at it from different sides. Um, We're we're sort of jumping ahead a bit, but uh, Senna came from Lotus to McLaren with the Honda engine. Um, You know, he's the one that bought the Honda engine to McLaren. While Prost was already there as the sort of team embedded in the team and chassis guy, so you sort of had the the two the two sides of the garage, and each of them had certain advantage. Prost knew the team and the how the chassis worked, and Senna, you know, was in bed with Honda, um, and uh, you know sometimes they'd, they'd ship engines to McLaren, and it'd say on the crate special for Eton, uh, and uh, you know that would get up, uh, you know. Uh, Pross back up because he was, you know, it'd be like, well, have they done something special to the engine? Why has he got a special engine? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there was a lot of mind games going on between the two of them all the time. So, um, I, you know, I don't think their, rival, their rivalry has been pumped up the same way as the Hunt Ladder rivalry um, or uh, another era in, era in Formula One, Villeneuve and Peroni, when they were at Ferrari together. Um, you know Rosberg and Hamilton at Mercedes. Um, it, yeah, these all just sort of you know it makes good headlines. It makes for a good story. It makes for a good movie. Um, but I, I I think it was I, I think the way they cut the movie, the way they cut some of the interviews together, um, they made Alan Prost into way more of a villain than he actually was in reality.
0: Well, you know um, I want to, I want to ask you this because that's that's good because it I was going to say that the movie. It it tries to make you think that they went from being you know really good buddies there to hating each other almost overnight it seemed like, but it never really explains why. I mean it it shows that they're competing against each other you know and one of them you know kind of bumps in the other or takes them off road. But it, it it it's like the movie tells us that they're that their rivalry grew nasty and they quit speaking to each other. But it doesn't really tell us what happened or whose fault or why it did that. And so that was just never entirely clear to me. So the story
1: as to why they stopped talking to each other, I think they, they there was a race um, where they'd made an agreement that whoever got to the first corner first would take the race. So it was like, you know, if you, if you get there first, I'll stay behind you. You go on and win the race. Okay. Um, and so they had they had that agreement and the, first, uh, the, the race started and Senna went off in the lead and Prost stuck in behind him and they were all good. Then there was an accident and the, the race got red flagged. When the race restarted, Prost took off and got to the first corner first and Senna pulled out and went around him and basically threw the ignored the agreement. And Senna's argument was, well, that agreement only applied to the first start, not to the second start. And Prost was like, no, we had an agreement. Um, and you broke that agreement. And apparently at the test session afterwards... The two of them got into a hell of an argument and it was over that. And Senna was like, I didn't do this. And, you know, I didn't break the rule, what, the agreement and agreements don't count. And Prost was like, yes, you did. Like 70 million people saw you do it, you know. Um, mm. And apparently he went off and, and uh, talked to a, 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 a French journalist off the record about what he thought about Senna. And of course, what did the French journalist do? he went and wrote a piece about what Prost actually said that he thought about Senna on that day when he was really angry and published it in the paper. And Senna's like, this guy's running me down in the paper. That's it. I'm never going to talk to the Frenchman again. Um, yep. So, you know, that's, that's apparently the story behind why they stopped talking to each other. Um, and it just sort of escalated from there. Um, so, Hmm. yep.
0: Yeah, that wasn't really in the movie, though. It just kind of said that no. they competed for a while, and then all of a sudden they were mad at each other, and then all of a sudden they quit speaking to each other. And I'm going, well, okay, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Having an argument at a test session and talking to a journalist is not very uh, visual.
0: <laughs> I guess not, yeah. yeah. All right, where, so. where were you going? I, I, I cut you off.
1: Yeah, I was going to say right at the beginning of the race, after the karting, they go to Monaco in 1984 when he's in the, in the Tolman, in the wet, Mm-hmm. Um, that was an amazing race. Um, there's no way that that car should have been anywhere near the front of the grid and he bought it all the way up to the beginning. Um, and again, I think this is part of the beginning. Um, this is one area where I think Prost did, did play the politics. He was very good at the politics. He knew the rules. Um, was that uh, he called for the race to be stopped and um, they stopped the race in the wet and Prost actually stopped right at the beginning of the finish line. And as he did so, Senna passed him. As the checkered flag was coming out, to my mind, Senna won that race. Mm-hmm. It would have been his first victory in the tournament in the wet at Monaco. You watch the video, and it's like he won that race. But what they did back then, which they don't talk about in the in the movie, is when they stopped the race, they would count back to the res- the positions of the previous lap, which meant that Prost won.
0: Oh, okay, that makes sense. So
1: I've always thought, I've always thought that that basically Prost robbed Senna of that. First win in that amazing drive in the wet in Monaco in 84. Um, so uh, I think that was sort of start of the, because uh, if you look at it, start of the needle. So, um, and then they go to, it um, went to the Portuguese GP uh, win in the rain in Lotus. For me, this is one of the high points of Formula One. Um, I wish they'd shown it in the movie because all they did was show him coming over the, the, the finish line. That was a brilliant, brilliant race. Um, center driving, I would say, it was the last win for my my favorite team. <laughs> so uh, I, I always remember it. Um But uh, Senna lapped everybody except second place in atrocious
0: conditions. Yeah, they um, said that. They did say that part. They did say that he lapped right. all but one car, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and let yeah. me ask you this. And by the way, what, what team is Lotus now? I know they've been through 15 different iterations. It,
1: it's, it doesn't actually – that team doesn't actually exist anymore. Um, okay.
0: It,
1: it, it's gone totally. Other people have used the Lotus name a couple of times since, but it there's been no direct descendant from that. Like okay. it went – you know, like you can trace—I don't know—you know, Mercedes back to Stewart Racing, or you know, yeah. um, Aston Martin back to Jordan. You can't do that now. Lotus, Lotus disappeared completely. Um, so,
0: yeah. So they're the Houston Oilers, basically. So the yeah, the, pretty much the thing I wanted, <laughs> The thing, other thing I was going to ask you about that. So, so he was so. Elaine Prost robbed him of that race win. I agree. And then was it the next season that the other? outrage happened where Senna and when they crashed and Senna recovered and drove on to win and Prost went and complained and said, no, he didn't get that one turn and they took it away from him, which cost him the world. That's actually a couple of seasons
1: ago.
0: Okay. It wasn't, yeah, you know, that, they, that's they,
1: actually in 89. Yeah. Was, uh, that's a couple of years later.
0: Because mm-hmm. I felt like he should have won four world championships in a row and they kind of robbed him of that one.
1: Yeah, they did. They did well. Yes, they did. Um, I also think Prost was an idiot. Well, maybe we'll get to that one. So, because <laughs> one of the things I want to talk about is um, in the movie um, was Monaco '88. So this is Senna's first year at um, McLaren. Uh, Monaco '88. They don't mention it in the movie. So this is the one in the movie that they basically have a voiceover of him talking about how he had this out-of-body experience and he wasn't really driving the car anymore. Do you mm. remember that? He's, yeah, he's talking vaguely. About how, yeah. Uh, and then they show him basically stuffing it into the barriers um, and getting out of the car because he had, like, a 40-second lead and he just smashed it into the barrier. Right. Um, what, so what they don't talk about is actually that his qualifying lap is considered um, – the lap of the gods, um, basically. Uh, the, one of the greatest qualifying laps ever. Um, at Monaco 88, um, it was slightly slower than the, uh, the pole position the previous year, but that's when Senna said he had the out-of-body experience, was not in the race, was, was actually setting the, this qualifying lap. Um, he got on pole. He was 1.4 seconds ahead of Prost on pole at Monaco in identical cars. God. And he he was point. 0.7 seconds ahead of the third place car in <laughs> qualifying. I mean, he was just—it was like the perfect lap of Monaco. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, though, you can never see it because even though that session was broadcast live, there was no trackside cameras. Or well, the trackside cameras didn't pick up Senna, and there was no onboard cameras at that point. So the—and uh, in fact, there was no onboard camera in on the uh, McLaren in the 88 race where you see Max. He put it in the barrier. Um, if you That section, that piece of footage is all done from trackside cameras. Yet yeah, they show you over-the-shoulder footage of him at Monaco when they're talking about the 1988 race. That is actually him from the 1990 race, um, because in 1988, the onboard cameras, they were so primitive and limited and expensive, they had basically two cameras, and they would issue them to a particular team each weekend. One team would get them that weekend, and the weekend in Monaco, it was actually the Brabham team that had the onboard cameras, not the McLarens. Um, so, that, that, like I said, like I was saying earlier, they they sort of fudge some of the footage in this movie. They make some implications about what you're seeing. What, what they're talking about doesn't actually tie in with what you're seeing if you know the footage. Um, so they, they 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 did they did fictionalize some pieces of it. Um, so you know, and they also conflated. Hit, about three different interviews when he's talking about qualifying and he's talking about the mistake he made in the race they sort of pulled three different interviews together to make it sound like it's one narrative um so yeah you know <laughs> yes he did he did have the out of body experience in but that was was in qualifying um yes he did have the lapse of concentration in the race um and uh, i don't think i don't I can't remember if they mentioned it in the uh in in the movie um but he actually stuffed it into the barriers pretty much across the road from where his apartment was. Um, so he got out of the car and basically walked back to his apartment and closed the door and wouldn't speak to anybody till about nine o'clock that night.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I, I, I just
1: want to talking about the, sorry, I'm dominating this a bit, but
0: no, 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 I, I'm interested. I want to talk about the, those on
1: yeah. the, the on, on boards footage in this movie. I love the. It doesn't matter which which season we're talking about. I love all the on board footage in this movie mm-hmm. because it is so primitive. Because the cameras rattle mm-hmm. and shake, and you hear the noise, and they bounce, and sometimes they go out of focus. To me, it really gives you a great sense of all the bumps and the vibrations, and a real visceral feel of the set and sense of speed, which the modern stabilized HD mega cameras. Don't give you. And what do you think about that? Because you've been watching Formula One mm-hmm. more recently. I sort of grew up with the mm-hmm. introduction of onboard cameras and seen them develop. And I love these really early footage from these really early ones. Um, so yeah. What did you think seeing the sort of on, this sort of raw onboard footage?
0: Well, yeah, I, I agree completely. I think it's it's awesome, and it, and it is, it is more visceral. You're more like you're there. It's not like a video game as much. It, it says a lot to me about the, the, the current cars and tracks that when they show some of these really good video game versions like during the pandemic – it sometimes i couldn't tell if i was watching a video game or the actual race whereas with the older ones like this there's no doubt you know you couldn't recreate this you couldn't recreate the dirt and the and the vibration and the the reality of it it looks but see that's to me is just how i feel about racing in general is that it's i'm glad it's a lot safer nowadays no doubt about that but it also has lost a lot of that grittiness it seems like it just doesn't seem like the same activity Somehow, and and yeah, the footage you're talking about, the cameras like you're talking about, goes a long way toward really bringing you know highlighting and bringing that contrast out. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is you know, and certainly at certain tracks, I, I think it it is still very physical and visceral and stuff. But you know, the fact that uh, we have to have the clear, crisp HD images for TV, I think just just robs robs it of that and makes it look a lot easier than it really is. Yeah, um, yeah. You don't don't get the sense of these guys being the athletes that they are. Um, where you do, I think, in the in the older footage. So I think that's true. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So you you were talking about 1989, uh, um, mm-hmm. where um, basically Prost and Senna were at the last race in Japan, and Prost had to finish, and Senna not for no. Hang on, I've got to get this right the right the right way around. Well,
0: there were several in um, a row that came down to Japan uh, and each one had slightly different ramifications. R- like, ramifications,
1: but yeah. yeah
0: you yeah. had to win, but you um, had to not finish, or you had to finish ahead of you, or it just yeah, every right. one of them was different, but it was all kind of the same situation.
1: Yeah, so there was eighty-nine when they were both at McLaren with Prost turned in on Senna. Senna was going, mm-hmm. going up the inside and Prost turned in on him. You're right. And that's the one where basically they then push started Senna. Um, and he went down the escape road uh, and drove back up through the pack and won the race and then got disqualified because he didn't turn around and go back through the chicane. Most stupid ruling ever. But Prost was an idiot because he got out of the car. If he'd have mm-hmm. stayed in the car, because it didn't look like there was any damage on it, they could have probably pushed out him and he knew the rules. He could have probably, you know, he played, he would have made, maybe he played it right the rules or maybe he would have followed centre and they wouldn't have disqualified either of them and mm-hmm. Prost could have won it. That way, I don't know. It just um, it, it just seems strange that he got out of the car, um, even though he saw Santa being pushed started and getting back on track. So.
0: Yeah, I was. But, about but that. yeah, but
1: Prost definitely squeezed him into that corner and uh, and caused the accident. I think
0: that seemed like it. it seemed like it to me too. Yeah, and that was, yeah. I was that was why I was frustrated because a it seemed like it was Prost's uh, Prost fault. I can't ever pronounce his name right, Alain Prost. It was his fault that they crashed. And then he it's like he immediately went and cried to the boss, unfair, you know, and got him to, and it seemed like that the boss was totally on his side. It seemed like, uh, and and there's several moments in the movie, again, I'm just basing it on what I see in the movie because I didn't see the original stuff, but there's several moments that the movie seems to be telling me Prost is a bad guy and he's got the, guy in charge of everything on his side every time, and Senna knows it, and Senna is complaining about it a lot.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty pretty much yeah. I mean, like I say, Prost, uh, Prost, Prost knew, he, he, he knew the rules, he knew how to play it. It was a very political animal. Um, you know, he was a Frenchman, the head of the FIA was a French guy, um, was a very opinionated French guy who, uh, not just Prost, but was, was very favorable to the French teams and the French drivers. Prost knew how to play that. Um, how to leverage it. The was didn't like Senna. Uh, um, that that was pretty obvious. Uh, there were several drivers he didn't like. So, you know, yes, he he picked on Senna, but he didn't just pick on Senna. Um, I don't think he particularly liked Niki Lauda. Niki Lauda had a, a, a lot of uh, set twos as well. In fact, he really didn't like anybody that talked about safety. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and he was very much in the pocket of Renault and Ferrari and Ligier. He didn't like the English teams, the Garish Garage Easters as Ferrari used to talk about them, basically the ones who constructed their uh, race cars in a garage and weren't real car manufacturers, so there was a lot of politics at that time flying around and, and unfortunately, I think Senna was at the butt end of that, and Prost knew how to play it again, I, you know it, it makes it look like it was you know, Prost and ballestra against Senna, yeah, there was a degree of that, I think, but that it was just a smaller part of a much bigger picture that was going on mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah. You know, they, they were very quick to uh, you know, penalize, penalize the English uh, manufacturing teams while Ferrari and Renault uh, uh, and others would get away with all, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, there was a whole <laughs> whole thing going on at that point. Mm. So you think it's political now,
0: it's nowhere near as political as it was in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> that certainly comes across, yeah. And we have to pause for just one moment to thank all the great folks who keep shows like this on the air. For as little as a dollar a month, you can join the ranks of the White Rocket family, the Open Wheel family, the folks that keep these programs going. And you get various benefits, including our upcoming Fantasy Formula One season, where patrons will get to compete against Alan and me and others for the big prize throughout the Formula One season. Plus, I thank all of our patrons every episode right here. All you have to do is just go to www.patreon.com and search White Rocket or Plexico. Or you can just go to www.plexico.net. P-L-E-X-I-C-O onet net. We are a net, not a com. And click on the button there to become a patron. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can join the ranks. Here are the great folks currently keeping our programs on the air. They include Chris and Clinton Stewart. Carl Von Drunker, Christopher Burleson, Samuel Salvatore, Bart Lindsey, Bradley Blackman, Chris Usher, Gary Grant, Phil Amthor, Richard Stevens, Steve Trewick, Susan Trewick, Tom Anderson, Willie Carden, and Kandian, hey, you falling up. Ben Bloodworth, Clay Henson, Dan Thompson, Daniel Odom, David Evers, David Hegler, Emmanuel Seaman, George Gaston, Jacob and Robin Fleming, James Greenwell, Joel Beckham, John Otsuki, Catherine England, Kevin Smith, Mickey B, Phil Davis, Preston Settle, Reynolds Wolf, Rich Reimer, Steve Harlan, Timothy, WDE, Richie, Wes Atkinson, William Morgan, Wilson Beard, Winston Body. Alex Nguyen, Blake Heron, Boris the Tiger, Cato the Barner, Chris Hilton, Colby Butler, Danny Flack, as well as, that ain't all, Darius Benton, David Simpson, Di Bama, and not a minute too soon, Earl Ricks, Eric Mahan, Hugh Anderson, Josh Teal, Kevin Kinoy, Kevin Mahan, Lane Middleton, Melissa Blackstone, Mike Finley, Algorithm, Papa Todd, Patrick Williams, Randall Walker, Rob Morgan, Ross, Russell Milling, Sarah Hines, Sasquatch, Shane Bailey, Shannon Butson, Snowdog, Stephen Houston, Tim Pittman, Tony Perry, Auburn Elvis. Ben Amos, Brandon Smith, Chris Como, Darren Pyle, David Smiley, Donnie Reynolds, James Taylor, Jason the Weasel School Albrick, John Stubbs, John Zavatchin, Joey Miller, Joseph Eiliff, Justin Bean, Kathleen, Kenneth Brent Rains, Lawrence Kane, Mark Squire, Matthew Flowers, Mick Vigicana, Nicholas Craig, Paul Bankson, and Robert Drain, and finally, the last few, Robert O. Sammons, Russell Souther, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Spanky, Stephen Thompson, Trevor Johnson, Brant Rumble, Chris, plus our one-time and anonymous donors. We thank each and every one of you, as I just did. Go to www.plexico.net or just go to Patreon.com and search Plexico or White Rocket and sign up, and we will read your name next time. Now, back to the show. Okay, the other—I I, I'm I know I'm not being super chronological, but these no, are just fine. things that are on my mind that I want you to help me with and maybe other listeners to help our listeners up with. So did I get the sense—I I looked at the years and saw that he won in like, what, like 80—I mean, 88— uh, 9091 something like that and then championship championships yeah and then yeah. A- yeah and then after that 92 and 93 it seemed to be saying that the technology changed and that was hurting him a little bit because suddenly his car wasn't as good as like the Williams car with their and then they changed it back again and that was when he ended up crashing but the other question i had was it just very briefly touched on this was was it that did I understand that Michael Schumacher was coming along at that time, and maybe he was part of the problem for for Senna, or what? Um,
1: so let me answer the second. Um, maybe we'll talk about this maybe when we we get to the accident. But but yes, um, in '94, Schumacher was the '94 uh, well, was the year that Schumacher won his first World Championship. So so yes, Schumacher was the becoming the dominant force. Um, okay. Uh, and unfortunately, I think we were robbed of of seeing Senna and Schumacher. I mean, you always get this in, in a. a areas you know when uh when santa was started started you listen to some of the the, the commentary of those early races you know they're talking about nikki lauda um being out there uh you know uh, they mentioned uh rosberg uh, keke rosberg uh, nico's dad um is you hear his name mentioned a couple of things mm-hmm. so you, you you always got this you know like now we've got you know hamilton getting towards the end of his career and we're getting you know the young guns coming up you always get these crossover period. So yes, towards the end of Senna's career, then Schumacher was was becoming the coming the, the coming star, yeah. Um so you know the, um so so going back to your earlier point, which I've immediately forgotten what it was that you were asking. Oh, just you said the, about Schumacher.
0: Just that. Oh, the, um, the, the,
1: the technology, yeah. car technology. Yeah. yeah. So he he won in '88, 90, 91, 92 it was really the the year of when stuff that Williams had been working on uh, for quite a while just became they, they developed the dominant car in 92 um i i, I hate it. it's not just because the fact that 92 is the year that nigel mansell won the world championship and he was my favorite driver and i worked on his autobiography um <laughs> <laughs> it's got nothing to do with it um but uh you know a lot of pe- people devalue uh, mansell's championship because they say the car had you know was so logically advanced and they actually i think even the ESPN commentator says it on this movie and it drives me nuts that all the driver had to do was sit there and put his foot down. That statement is complete bullshit because <laughs> nobody else could drive that car like Nigel Mansell could. Even his teammate couldn't. He couldn't get it around the corners the same way that Mansell did. You needed a particular driving style. You needed a particular body strength. You needed a particular way of approaching things to drive a Williams and, and winning it and, like that. And Prost had it too because in 93, Prost won the, the in, in a Williams, uh, won the World Championship. So, uh, you know, you had to be a special sort of driver to get the most out of it. Um, Yes, there was a lot of technology. There was active ride suspension. There was ABS brakes. Actually, a lot of the stuff that you've now got on your car came from these these cars. Um, Mm. The paddle shifts, sequential boxes, um, you know, um, like I say, ABS brakes, um, a lot of this stuff, um, computer control, traction control. Traction um, control, yeah. They all came from Formula One in this period. Um, (laughs) So... um, So, yeah, basically, uh, a lot of the teams were were, were working on that. Um, McLaren, um, like a lot of teams who get dominant, maybe got a little complacent. You know, we got the McLaren. We got the great chassis. We got Honda, the best engines. Um, But then Honda decided, just like now, they were going to pull out. Um, So there was a season when, you know, yes, they had the Honda engine, but maybe Honda wasn't putting as much into it. Um, In the meantime, Williams were putting more and more into development. Williams had the Renault. They were really heavily funded. They were had the best they had adrian newey they had uh you know gone on to build numerous world championship cars there was a whole thing of coming together this is weird that i'm talking about williams this way considering where williams are these days but yeah. williams really were the leading edge the leading edge um and you know and um, mansell was you know um and, and the williams drivers were challenging for world championships you know, back from in sort of 88 89 1991 so it's not like it they came up with a magic thing and the cars became computerized and suddenly Williams won everything. Um, you know, they, they'd been pretty uh, a front runner, you know, since the early eighties. Um, so it was just development uh, and McLaren were not so good at that. And obviously um, that's, you know, fairly early on Senna started, uh, you know, saying that he wanted to drive for, for Williams. Um, but uh, in 92, when they signed Prost, Prost actually had it in his, in his um, in his contract with Williams that he would not have Senna as a teammate uh, in 1993 when he drove for Williams. And then in, at the end of 93, Williams were like, sod it, we're going to sign Senna anymore. So Prost retired. Um, and uh, yeah, he went to Williams in 94 with, you know, wanting um, to drive those really advanced cars. And uh, what happened was that uh, the FIA decided to ban all the te- a lot of the technology um mm-hmm. so he ended up driving a car that was not was, wasn't was designed sorry was designed for all the active suspension and stuff and then had to be redesigned without it but that goes for a, nearly all the other cars on the grid as well it's not like it was only Williams that had this stuff taken off and it made the car unstable That same. it didn't matter who he'd been driving for he'd have been in that same excuse me he'd have been in that same situation so um did that answer your question?
0: Yeah. A bit of a no, rumbling sure. way of answering. No, that. absolutely. That's that's yeah. that's very good. That's what I was wondering. So, um okay. Yeah, sorry
1: the uh, the the whole 1992 a monkey could have dri- could have won the world <laughs> championship that year gets gets on my nerves. So. Sorry. Sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now clearly that's what well, I I was going to ask you that too. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because they they did pretty much right out flat out say that and I was thinking, well, come on. That's that seems I'm surprised a uh, legitimate sports reporting thing would have ever even said that. It was the announcers, you know, or whatever. So that really surprised me. But, um, So, all right. What else do we need to talk about about this movie? We've kind of covered the, the, the post, uh rivalry and I guess at some point we need to talk about it at the end, the 94 season and all that. But what else we need to cover that we haven't hit on before we get to the 94 season and all that?
1: So I'm actually going to sidetrack because we were just talking about him moving from McLaren to mm-hmm. um, Williams. So in '90. Two, at the end of 92, Senna wanted to leave McLaren and go to Williams, but Williams had signed Prost, and Prost said, No, you can't mm. sign Senna. So, actually, in December 92, Senna went and tested IndyCar for Penske um, hmm. uh, at Phoenix uh, Raceway. And there's a great I think it's 20 minute, 15, 20 minute documentary on YouTube called The Test, um, which is about Senna's IndyCar test. Um, and basically he turned up he did 10 laps in a 1992 Penske and was basically beating Paul Tracy and Rick Mears times <laughs> within 10 laps <laughs> um, and, and uh, apparently basically he hadn't but it was it was again this is Senna been calculating he had no intention of coming to IndyCar um, what he was doing was basically sending uh, the guys at McLaren a message that was like hey look you know Treat me right, or I'm going to uh, I'm going to go to America. Um, and he he went back and negotiated a deal, which again they don't talk about in the movie, but it's well known that for the 1993 uh, season um, with uh, his last season at McLaren, he did not have a full contract. He had a million million dollars a race agreement. Um, wow! And he would sometimes in the stories that basically he would stay in the hotel room until he basically got a phone call that the wire had cleared and then he would leave the hotel and go to the track put on his overalls go qualify
0: um, <laughs> that's awesome
1: so uh so yeah he uh so for the for that for that last plus he of course he got win bonuses and stuff so yeah he but uh it, well worth looking uh 15 20 minutes like you say it's on youtube it's called the test just uh just put in uh Senna indycar test you'll find it um it, it's an interesting watch because it's you, you got rick mears talking about how Senna's driving style and stuff like that yeah, pretty cool yeah
0: i'm all over all right
1: it. um which takes us to 94 uh mm-hmm. where he went to williams and as we said the, the sort of the car wasn't built uh was built for active suspension and then had all that taken off um it was a difficult car to get to grips with um uh, and he he basically he spun out at Brazil in the first race of the season, and then um, he second race he got taken out by a Ferrari. I can't remember who was driving the Ferrari, but he got taken out of the first corner uh, by a Ferrari, um, um, which led to the third race at Imola. Um, and again, I saw this in one of the other documentaries. Apparently, uh, Autosport that uh, that week published on its front cover uh, Schumacher twenty Senna nil, um, which really upset Senna. <laughs> um, so yes, the Schumacher became part of the equation as well, uh, mm-hmm. as that season. So I, I actually want to ask you, um, like I said, when we get to the MLM 94 stuff, it really hits me. Um, cause the first time I saw this movie was in one of the boutique, um, movie theaters for a special screening here in Austin and about half, half the, half the audience was people involved in motorsport or movie, uh, press movie press the other half i think they give them tickets out to the uh lo- a lot of the local brazilian expats so the movie theater was half full of brazilians half full of motorsport <laughs> movie people um and it was a very 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 emotional night um particularly when it got to this last piece I um, so I, i'd like to sort of get your your feeling on not just this last section of the movie around his accident but actually how they handled it in them in because you saw some pretty i was going to say graphic stuff but Pretty upsetting stuff in this section of the movie. Um, and I watched this, another documentary about Sh- uh, uh, about Santa the other day, and they they sort of didn't show anything. They just talked about Emila and they showed his statue and the memorial, but they didn't actually show any of the footage. Hmm. So, h- how do you feel, sort of, see, watching this in a movie in a, in a movie environment?
0: Well, they built up to it. I thought it was very interesting that they built up to it by showing the other two crashes. And I mean, I got to tell you. After the second one, I feel like they probably should have just said, you know, something's not right here because we got guys, one person already been killed. And honestly of the three, this is always the way it always is, you know, it's just like with Dale Earnhardt's crash, the ones that kill him never look as bad as the ones where the guys walk away. But the the one where the where Rubens Barrichello, he looked like he was in, been in 15 separate pieces after that crash and he walked away whereas though the two you know that killed the the two drivers right after that didn't seem as bad as his so i think it just kind of builds you up you're like okay man they're having crashes at this track uh-oh i don't like where this is going you know so i feel like it almost they almost give you so much carnage that when in, that when senna's crash happens in some ways it's almost anticlimactic because it's not a surprise. I mean, it's not a surprise anyway, if you know how this is going to go, but it's like, you've just shown us these other two people have horrific crashes. It, 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 it feels like you're sort of almost making me numb to it after a while. I, I don't know. That's, that was kind of my first reaction.
1: All right. Interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cause they showed like earlier on in the movie, they showed Martin Donnelly's, um, bad accident. And that's when Senna sort of started to get involved in safety and went yeah. To get involved. Um, uh, yeah and that one always makes me wince uh, and by the way what they don't mention in the movie is actually martin donnelly um was relatively okay i mean he never raced a single seater again but mm. he went back to racing and uh, you know um, was relatively okay um but yeah the this the build-up to it um particularly the uh, i mean the ratzenberger crash like you said um doesn't look as spectacular as the Rubens Barrichello one. The Rubens Barrichello one, he comes out with a, you know, a little bruised lip. And unfortunately, you know, Ratzenberger, um, you, you can sort of tell by the time the car comes to a, an end in the way it's head flops over that he's not made it. Um, but doesn't look as, as spectacular. And if you say it's, it's when that kinetic energy doesn't get thrown out is when it's bad. Uh, a yeah. bit like the Dale Earnhardt one, as you as you mentioned. Um, for me, I think the with Senator's accident I think that the worst part was actually watching the onboard footage waiting for it to happen. Mm. You know it's building towards that. You you know is it this is it this corner is it this corner is it this corner yeah. is it going to happen now is it going to happen now um, and then showing those two lap, I think it's two laps of footage beforehand. That made that made me uncomfortable, uh, particularly watching it this time. Um so um you know and then they the, the obviously you know he the, the thing is you know I saw that happen I didn't see the, the, the practice accidents, but we watched this happen live on TV um, oh, at the yeah. time. Um, yeah. So, you know, just seeing him sat in the car and the fact that the marshals just stood away from him, like, oh, you know, this this is bad. Um, you know, I, I, and actually what struck me watching it this time, having seen Roman Grosjean's miraculous escape, thankfully, at the end of the last season, was how long it seemed to take the doctor's car to get to Santa. Yeah, um, I, I know Grosjean's was on the opening lap, so the, the the medical car was tailing the end of the field. But it just seems to take a, a, an age for the for the medical car to to get to him in in that footage. Um, but um, yeah, it, I don't know. It, it, it always gets me. Um, you, you know, you never like to see that. Um, but it just, I don't think they necessarily needed to do the onboard footage leading up to the actual moment of him going off the road. Um, in retrospect, yeah. But, um,
0: I can see that, yeah. Yeah. So,
1: um, so again, one of the things I didn't like about the movie um, is they basically talked about how the fact that it was down, down to a faulty um, steering column or steering wheel.
0: And something hit him um, in the head, right? Something that they said yeah, if it was six inches yeah. higher or lower, it wouldn't have hurt him. He would have walked away. I didn't quite get that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was a uh, part of the suspension broke and pierced his helmet. Um mm no matter what the cause of the crash is, that that probably would have happened. Um, but they did talk about it being a, a steering failure. Uh, and I don't think it was and a lot of the drivers don't think it was, um, you know, this is just, just, just me, um, just from sort of research and listening and reading interviews and, um, you know, um, but uh, both Damon Hill um, and uh, Michael Schumacher, who was the car immediately behind think it was driver error. And um, I think, the Shum- I think Schumacher was, was part of it, not in terms of the fact that Schumacher hit him, but the fact that Schumacher was there. Because um, um, he'd already, I mentioned in Brazil, the first race of the season, he, he basically caused an unforced error. He said it was because he was overdriving the car trying to catch Schumacher in Brazil. Um, and I think here he was desperate to break free from the fact that Schumacher was behind him. Uh, and he just carried too much speed into that corner and was on a, offline on a different part of the track, which was known to be bumpy. Um, and the car bottomed out. Um which caused it to stop the aeros, aerodynamics to stall. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if there's um, telemetry that shows his, his entry speed at that corner, the lap before was 188. And in that lap, he went in at 193. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think he just basically uh, was desperate to win and desperate to get away from, get out in front of Schumacher. And, you know, they've been stuck behind. I mean, you saw the safety car, the safety car was just a normal road car. Uh, it's not like the safety car they have now that can go at, you know, ridiculous ridiculous miles an hour speed. It was just a, a normal road car. So they, you know, uh they've been going really slow. The the tires were were cold and soft. Um and I, I think he just um you know it was just center win at all cost and he he just went into that corner um way too quick on a different line um on cold tires and was on a bumpy part that caused the uh the the twitchy chassis aerodynamics to, to stall out and it just uh he slid off, and the, you know, there's been big accidents at that corner before. Um, Gerhard Berger had one where his car burst into flames, and hmm. you know, it, he uh, he he got out of that. Um, I, the, the bad luck was was really just that suspension piece that uh, that came off. And as he said, if it had been a few inches higher, um, yeah. it would have flown over the top of his head. So, uh, yeah, really tragic. Um, so um, that was sort of my thoughts on it. Um, I don't know if you had any final thoughts around it.
0: Well, um it's it's a hard movie to really for me to get my mind around because it's not, you know, it's it's not a linear story so much other than just tracing his his career pretty much. But I I think the things that I liked the most about it, I thought that it did a really good job of kind of getting us as, as considering, you know, that it was sort of cobbled together with like you said home movies and broadcast footage, I thought it did a pretty remarkable job of giving us a sense of what he was like as a person, and that was not easy to do in that kind of situation. I thought that, like the little touches, like having the doctor, the F1 doctor, saying, you know, when things started going bad, I went to him, and I said, "This was the my probably my favorite line, or my whole favorite thing in the whole movie was the doctor said I went to him when things were kind of going bad that weekend, and I said, I said Ayrton." You know, you, you've you you've you've won three championships, you're the fastest person in the world, everybody knows it, you have nothing to prove, you like to fish, I like to fish, let's quit and go fishing. And he said, Sen- Senna looked at him and said, I can't quit. Sid, I can't quit. Yeah. I thought that was a really good moment because it was, again, it, it, it gave you a lot more insight. Just that little bit there gave you an insight. Because without that, you'd have been like, man, with two people crashing and one of them dying – why wouldn't you if you were that rich and famous and beloved and had already won whatever, you know? I mean, Nico Rosberg walked away with one and it wasn't even as dangerous of a sport anymore. <laughs> you know, right. so um so why would he not just say, "Look, I've had enough. I I've, I've got too much to protect, you know. Now I can't be risking my life like this." But he that's the that's who he was, you know, and he couldn't couldn't walk away. So I thought that was good and um and um I think that the part, you know, kind of showing his concern for Brazil and how he kept wanting to give back. And they started the. Um, it did mention at the end that Elaine Prost was a trustee of his foundation or whatever. So foundation.
1: that was. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that was yeah. good. I, I guess, I mean, the first time I watched it, I was focusing on the racing stuff and I didn't love it as much. Whereas this time I focused more on the human stuff and I feel like I got more out of it.
1: Yeah. It's a very human story um you're talking about brazil i i uh, something i i uh i read while i was sort of doing some more reading around this movie is that uh a few people reckon that you know he always his, his thing was once he gave up racing he he'd go into politics in brazil and so one of them was like you know i reckon he could have become the president of brazil and he'd, he'd have walked into that position everybody would have just you know he did and he'd been a good president of brazil so that, that i thought that was an interesting yeah i that you know he just had, had about brazil the country and the people so much um that he'd have been a populist president which is an interesting idea there's a couple of race drivers who've gone into politics so uh, yeah that would have been that is interesting, interesting. I, I i yeah um yeah I, I think despite the uh the omissions uh there's there's a lot that they missed out in this movie they, they jumped around a lot i used to say in the artistic license um on what was meant to be a documentary um i, I actually think this was really a fascinating portrait of uh of the man, um, you know, I think on one hand, he, you know, he knew he had a supreme talent and um, like I said earlier, you know, literally a God-given talent, but I think he was also frighteningly uh, insecure. Um, and in some areas, I think he, you know, he comes over as a, as a reckless uh, renegade in some parts of the movie. And then in other parts, you know, he's sort of lauded as the greatest driver of all time. And I think, you know, the truth, like with all these things, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, but I think this really gives you a uh, 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 a really good look at a guy who really is a, a fascinating uh, enigma um, in Formula One and uh, continues to be so as well. Um, yeah. Everybody has an opinion about him. Everybody um, in uh, follows Formula One either knows him or gets to know him, about him very quickly. Um, um, I don't know if you know, but uh, um, Netflix are going to do an eight-part biopic series on his life and career uh, release uh, next year.
0: Really, like a so. like a fictionalized with an actor and everything.
1: That's all I uh, all I know. I there was a uh, it was a press release that they were going to do an eight part uh, biopic uh, in uh, with the cooperation of, of his family and foundation um, for release in twenty twenty two. So
0: it, it must be because there's no point doing another do, another documentary. No. Well, if you? it's a
1: biopic, yeah, I, assure, I assume yeah. yeah, it's a it's a fictionalized
0: so one. So it'll yeah. be a drama yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, sh- yeah. If it's with his yeah. family, so I'm sure it'll be. It'll emphasize a lot of the religious angle and show him in turmoil a lot. And I'd be interested to see who plays Elaine Prost. That'll be fun. How do they portray him? And is he yeah. like a Sith Lord? You know, <laughs> <Or what? laughs> that'll be fun. Uh, wow. Yeah. So, what do you make of Prost? I know nothing about him, and I know we talked about it a little bit already. But just kind of what he—he's such a big part of this movie and this story. What—what what do you make of him, Alan? You know this um, better than me. I, he
1: was he's never the most exciting driver to watch, but you, you had to really, I think, respect his skill. I mean, skill behind the wheel. Yeah. Um, when he needed to be, he could be, the, you know, really fast. Um, they, I think they talk about it in the movie that, uh, you know, if he needed to stay in fifth place to yeah. get the championship points, he would, while Senna would go for the lead, even if it meant him crashing out. Yeah. Um, so you know, like I say, he knew, he played the game very very well. But he on his day was you know you don't become four times world champion um, and not be good. Um, uh, you know, and very calculating. They, they call him the professor. And uh, you know, I, I, he actually in interviews and in a lot of interviews he comes over as quite a cheeky um, guy with a good sense of humor. I mean, even now when he's in the Renault, sorry Alpine um <laughs> Alpine. Aros, where he's where oh, he's uh, where he's a uh, Senior uh, consultant, though. I'm not quite sure what his role is, but he seems to be fairly senior in the in the Renault Formula One team. Um, he, he still comes over with uh, you know a smile and a quip and stuff. Um, smart guy. I, I, I did see one interview with uh, where somebody he was asked you know if Senna if Senna hadn't been around, would your life been easier? And he was like, well, I might have won two more world championships. Um, <laughs> so that's you know, a, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, like I said, um, I'm ju- just trying to think who the, the modern equivalent of Prost would be. Huh. Um to an, extent, Hamil- to an extent, Hamilton, I think. Because yeah. Hamilton's got the natural talent and Prost, uh, but Hamilton also knows works. He works really hard, like Schumacher did. Um, uh, and I think Prost was, was very much that model, uh, was probably the first one to bring that sort of mental discipline um, Nicky Lauda did it too, to an extent, but I think Prost sort of took it to another level of applying that sort of mental discipline to, to it, um, which I think you've seen come to the fore in people like uh, Schumacher and Hamilton.
0: And I, but I got a lot. I, 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 see what you mean, but I also got a lot of. Um, I got a lot of sense of uh, that. That Lewis Hamilton has some some Senna in him.
1: Oh yeah, I mean Senna was his um, was his idol. Yeah, I mean, he he wore that yellow that yellow helmet for years. In fact, I wish he still did. Um, you know, uh, in his McLaren day, you know, both from his karting days all the way through his McLaren days, he wore the uh, the yellow helmet in tribute to Senna. And then, if you remember, in uh, in was it in Mexico or something where he matched one of Senna's records, and they gave him one of Senna's helmets, and he would like almost collapsed in emotional yeah. tears and stuff. So yeah, um, I think he's yeah. You know, he does have a lot of the, the touch of center about him as well, particularly in the wet. Um, all the great drivers are great in the wet, so all the good, you know, the greats are all good in the wet.
0: Well, that yeah, that's uh, Max. It made me think of Verstappen because he emerged as such a yeah, big, yeah, yeah, wet uh, yeah, mutter. His mudder was a mudder. His father was a mudder. <laughs> He's a mutter. <laughs> well, that's that's cool. All right, um, I guess that means we've covered this movie yeah i guess so i mean it's, I it's, so. this is our first documentary so we really didn't have a road map like we normally do usually we have kind of a <laughs> you know a direction yeah, we, usually to we follow
1: follow the script but right. yeah the, the, there was no but uh, yeah I, I as i mean for folks who are listening to this who are not formula one fans um would i recommend it yes i would i think i'd do what van said though don't focus the racing stuff yeah. is great but focus on the human story. Focus on the guy. Um, I think you'll get more out of it that way. Um, and uh, and then maybe on a second go round, look at it from the sporting point of view. Um, but take but take some of the characterization of some of the people, well, all of the people, with a fairly <laughs> si- um, si- size sizable pinch of salt, and, and realise that the truth lies somewhere between yeah. the opposites that you're seeing on the TV uh, on the screen. But uh, but yeah, de- uh, I would say it's one of the best one of the best documentaries on uh, on racing that's out there.
0: Yeah, and Real I did it lot. the opposite of what you just said, so I would definitely recommend you do it the other way around because I, I watched it for the racing the first time and was kind of like, eh. And I watched it this time and, and was more taken by the by the people. And the, the last thing I'm going to say, uh, kind of bring us to the end, is the funeral. Honestly, the the, the state funeral he got in Brazil reminded me of gandhi's funeral at the beginning of gandhi where it's like it looks like the pope has died i mean like the whole country turned out they were they were you know giving him a ticker tape parade as his coffin went down the highway to wherever you know the church or whatever and then you got the air force jets flying over and you got like the entire brazilian honor guard of their army carrying the casket in and, and marching it in and you got all the people coming out and at the at the memorial service and all and and I'm just like, holy cow. I mean, I knew he was a, a big deal, but it's like the it's like if the entire Brazilian soccer team won the World Cup and then the plane crashed. It's like the whole country just stopped and they were and there was one Yeah. Other, yeah. And there was yeah. one yeah. there was one other line I wanted to mention. This lady said, and I wish I could remember all the words, but I, again there's several really good lines in this movie and they all come from just regular people, like the doctor, you know, the 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 racing doctor had that great line about going fishing. This, this one stuck with me, too. This lady said, Brazil needs health care and housing and education and a little joy, and now our joy is gone. And I thought, man, that really sums up what he meant to a country that can be so bad off, it's so poor in so many places, you know, that having somebody to look up to and, and thrill to their exploits who proudly – because they said – at that time, a lot of Brazilian celebrities would would kind of, like, pretend they weren't from Brazil, whereas Senna would wave the flag and, you know, kiss at the at the Brazilian fans and just totally embraced it, and they embraced him. So he meant so much to that country and those people, particularly the poor people, that could have never really had a chance to get where he was. He kind of did it for all of them, and I think he appreciated that. I think he understood that, and it meant a lot to him he wasn't just driving for himself you know you don't see that as much nowadays but i think he really did feel like he was carrying that whole country on his shoulders he did
1: uh, and uh you know to an extent he, he still does the williams cars still carry the center foundation logo on them um, yeah. they still work with the Senna foundation um yeah. uh, you know uh, all his merchandise still goes to um you know you buy a Senna t-shirt the money still goes to the brazilian kids um continued to do a lot of really good work and uh yeah he really was carrying the you know the hopes uh, uh, and as you said the joy of the 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 nation on on his shoulders once he became uh successful and continued to be successful um and you know he didn't he didn't sink it all into you know yachts and aircraft and all the other things that multi-millionaire sportsmen do um you know he he really gave it back into his 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 country um and uh yeah um they sort of I think that I can't remember the guy's name, which is unfortunate. There's a there's a soccer player who plays for I think it's Liverpool in the UK, and the, he was walking out of a um, match one day and he had a his watch on and the, like the screen was broken or something and somebody's like, "Why are you wearing a broken watch? You earn like you know half a million dollars uh, pounds or whatever." But he actually gives all his money back to the African village where he grew up. Um, oh wow! And he's like, "Well, you know, all I need is a watch to tell the time." <laughs> um, you know, um, that's not important. What's important is feed, feeding the people who raised me and got Amen. me here.
0: Um that. Uh,
1: And Senna was Senna was like. And I apologise, I can't remember the guy's name, which is horrible. Um, but uh, you know, Senna was very much the same. Um, yeah, he did enjoy the good life while he was back there. That was his family's tradition. But he also knew what he could do for everybody else, and uh, continued to do that. And I think again, that's part of his enigma and mystique um, was that he was this aggressive renegade i'm gonna win at all costs you know i've got a god-given right to win guy on the track who was doing all this amazing charitable work back home um, uh, and not really shouting about it and talking about it but just getting on and making people's lives better um a fascinating guy um i don't think we'll ever get into fully understanding him um, from the outside but i think this movie goes some way to do that
0: all right. Well, that was good. I, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad I watched it again. I actually own it. I bought it the first time. I have it on my iPad, and I've enjoyed watching it all day. All day during my office hours, and this evening during dinner. And and I tell you, it was uh, it's it's quite a story. So, I guess we are got to find um, we're we're running low on racing movies, aren't we? We found a couple more. What what have we got kind of yeah. coming up in the future?
1: Oh um, yeah, that's a good point. We'll have to look up. Uh, we'll have to put a list together. Um, see what we want to do next. I. I, w- the one I really want us to do is Winning, which is the Indianapolis uh, 500 movie that starred Paul Newman, which was the one that sparked Paul Newman's racing career. Um, but I haven't found it on streaming yet um, or on DVD, so I, I need, uh, I'd need i love us to do that one at some point. Um, okay. If you want to do NASCAR, we could do Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise. I rewatched really that not <laughs> long ago.
0: Oh, gosh. Okay, I've never seen it, so I have no You've idea. You've never seen it? All no. right.
1: <laughs> let, let, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, let's go do days of thunder um, i'm gonna
0: have to watch the infamous mellow yellow car of days of thunder all right yeah let it be written i actually
1: i i was probably about two or three weeks ago that i actually realized that mellow yellow was an actually a proper thing i thought it was something they'd made up for the movie really but it was was a drink done by coca cola wasn't it
0: yeah it was coca-cola's version of mountain dew Oh, okay. All right. You know how Coke has yeah. to make their own version of everything, you know. If Dr. Yeah. Pepper is successful, they make Mr. Pibb. If Mello if uh, Mountain Dew is successful, they make Mellow Yellow. Yeah, absolutely. If, yeah, okay. For if, years if, I thought if,
1: it was just made up for the movie and then I would I I, I saw a reference <laughs> to it. And I'm like, oh, it's an actual thing.
0: It, so, yeah. If 7-Up is successful, they make Sprite. I mean, every everything Coke makes is their version, their ripoff of something independent. And that was them, yeah. So, uh, okay. See, that was what All was right. so funny. It looks so real. It looks so legit that I always thought he just borrowed somebody else's car. But I guess that was made well, up. A lot of,
1: uh, no, a lot of it is legit. They actually filmed a lot of it at the Daytona 500. But we'll, we'll talk about that one. Yeah.
0: Of, so, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we're gonna get out of here for this episode. I hope you guys check out and Enjoyed if you haven't already seen it. And uh, Alan, thanks a bunch, man. Thank you, Van. Fun as always. All right. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.